0: morning, everybody. Sounds like you're still hungover with turkey. How was your Thanksgiving? Everybody good? Yeah, mine... Uh, every few years, I forget about the discipline I need during the Thanksgiving pre-meal, and I ate way too much pre-meal this morning, or uh, that morning. And so I only had one plateful of Thanksgiving food, which is disappointing to me. So, anyway... I'm whining too much. Let's get to the scriptures. What do you say? If you're new here, my name is Frank, and I'm the teaching pastor here at uh, Redemption Arcadia, and we are glad that you are here. Let me add my welcome to you. We are in our 12th week of a series in the book of 1 Peter. So if you have your Bibles uh, or your apps, or if you need a Bible, there's one underneath the chair probably in front of you, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. That's where we're going to be. We're actually going to do the first 11 verses and as you're turning there, I'll just kind of say some words of introduction. Uh, as usual, I want to re- just a little bit of a review of where we are uh, for the sake of context. Uh, this letter that Peter writes is tremendously gospel-centered. It's, it's not that the Bible isn't gospel-centered, but this one, this letter, this particular letter, really leans into it because, as, as Sean mentioned, uh, right out of the gate, He says, thanks be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy, because of his great mercy, he caused us to be born again into a living hope. And so it is gospel-centered in in that we have been uh, rebirthed, we've been recreated in, in, uh, in Christ, that Christ's life, death, and resurrection now resides in us. And ultimately, our hope is in him. Uh, the living hope that we are born into is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit resides in us, and as a result, we can live and conduct ourselves in, in, in the ways that Peter has been talking about throughout this entire letter. And over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the one aspect of the human condition that is true for everybody, yet everybody wishes it were not true for anybody, especially themselves, and that would be the aspect of suffering suffering but peter's encouragement about suffering at every turn is that our suffering is something that we can endure and even redeem because of what jesus has already done in our lives and so we're in the midst of four or five weeks of talking about suffering and it's interesting to me there's a pastor and author Named John Ortberg. Some of you have probably heard of him. He's fairly famous and maybe even read some of his books. A few years ago, he was part of a, administrating a research study that was very comprehensive. And by that, I mean literally thousands and thousands of people participated in this study uh, from, a, from a position of data. And uh, it was interesting because one of the main things they were trying to get at in this, in this research was how are Christians, how are churchgoers best formed spiritually? How do they grow best spiritually? And Ortberg writes, uh, after he saw the results of the study, he writes this, It was very humbling for someone who spends the majority of his time preparing sermons and shepherding people. And I perked up at that because that's what I spend the majority of my time doing as well. Why was this humbling to somebody who spends the majority of their time uh, preparing sermons and biblical teaching and, and shepherding people? Well, the reason is that the number one response by far to how people grow spiritually, how they are formed spiritually, was not sermons was not pastoral teaching, was not pastoral counseling. It wasn't even small groups or life groups or what we call redemption communities. The number one response, the key to spiritual growth by far was suffering. This is what people said. Suffering in their lives was the key to spiritual formation. By far that was seen as the, by the majority of people. Ortberg responded also to these results by saying, I suddenly, re- suddenly realized our church did not have the one thing that it seemed it needed the most, a pastor of pain, distribution, and suffering. We don't have that either at Redemption. So as much as we may want to push back against suffering we really do need to understand suffering and we need to understand this teaching as well that Peter gives us. He spends a very large amount of his book, his letter, talking about suffering. And so last week we talked about how the suffering of Jesus entreats us to understand and endure our own suffering with patience and steadfastness. And today, Peter draws a different learning from Christ's sufferings and here it is. Jesus' sufferings help us to abate sin And serve others. The suffering that Jesus had, and therefore the suffering we experience as well, helps us to abate sin and to serve others. And so we have 11 verses to go through today, not just the five that Chad read. We're going to go back and pick up the first six verses of chapter 4 as well. That's the paragraph before Chad read. So let's start there, verses 1 through 6. I'll read those so that we have the context. Peter writes... Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles or the unbelievers want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and the implication, join them in the same flood of debauchery that you used to participate with them in. So they're surprised that they do not join you and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead And though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, the first thing right out of the gate that struck me about this paragraph here is that Peter says, arm yourselves. And isn't it just like the gospel to arm ourselves? By the way, that that Greek term for arm really is a military term. So Peter's talking about weapons. But isn't it just like the gospel to tell us to arm ourselves not with guns and bullets and bombs but to arm ourselves with a particular way of thinking. And so the question has to be, well, what does that thinking mean? What are we supposed to think? How do we arm ourselves with thinking? Well, two things. First of all, we have to think about the gospel. We have to keep the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, at the forefront of our minds. We have to remember that Jesus, as the Son of God, he came to, down from heaven He lived this perfect, sinless life. And then died for us on the cross as an atonement, as a penalty, as the payment for our sins. And then he rose from the grave, defeating Satan's sin and death. And as Peter says, was then seated at the right hand of God in heaven where he is reigning. And all authorities are subject to him. And we need to ground ourselves in that way of thinking. Because as God in his infinite wisdom and his mercy has come to us and caused us to be born again. That's what we were born into. We were born into Jesus' very life, death, and resurrection. And so we have the power to live out the gospel in our lives. And the power is the result of being in Christ. That that little Greek idiom that Paul likes to use so much. He used it 176 times. As a result, we have the power to embrace everything that Peter tells us that we should be trying to do, including living a holy life that he talks about in chapter 1. So that's the first thing that we are to be thinking about. And second, we're to be armed with the knowledge that just as Christ suffered in the flesh, in the body, there is suffering that we can also participate in that leads us to abate sin in our lives, to to lessen the impact of sin for us. Not the impact of the consequences of sin. Understand, everybody's looking for a way to, to, to reduce or eliminate the, the impact of the consequences of our sin. But he's talking here about the very desire for us to go out in sin. The passions of the flesh that we formerly indulged ourselves in, as Peter writes. So what does this mean that this suffering helps us to do this? Well, first of all, Peter is not saying that Jesus endured suffering so that Jesus would not sin and therefore our suffering causes us not to sin. The reason this makes, uh, this isn't what he's saying is because it makes no sense because Jesus was not a sinner. His, his, his nature was not that of, of a sinner. He never sinned. We know that from, again, from 2 Corinthians 5.21, from Hebrews 4.15 and from Isaiah 53. Jesus did not need a sin abatement program. So how is it then that like Christ we suffer and that helps us to abate sin? Well, here's what I believe is the answer. When we are in Christ, as Paul likes to write, when we've accepted Jesus in our lives and the Holy Spirit therefore resides in us, we are also in his life, death, and resurrection. Every aspect of Jesus lives in us now. And so We suffer in that we understand the principle of putting our life to death in favor of giving it to Jesus. Uh, Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 6. I think this is a great cross for what we're looking at here. You don't have to turn there, just let me read it to you. This is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and then verses 11 through 14. Here's what Paul says. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, the reason he's asking this question, Paul is asking this question, is he's laying out the case for grace in our lives. That, that, that we receive the grace of God to forgive us of our sins, not because of anything we've done, but only because it's, it's according to his great mercy that he gives us this free gift of grace. And so Paul is anticipating the question from his audience, which would be the same question that many of us would ask. Well, if, if there's this grace that, 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 that takes care of our sin, why don't we just go out and sin a whole bunch more? Wouldn't that kind of be logical? And Paul is saying, no. He says at verse 2, By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death Verses 11 through 14 by saying this. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, your body parts, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from life from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. So, Again, this is how we are to arm ourselves. We're to think of the gospel and then we are to understand who we are in Christ and Paul gives us a wonderful synopsis of who we are in Christ. Jesus would say it this way in Luke chapter nine. Whoever wishes to come after me, whoever wishes to be in me, whoever wishes to be with me, part of my tribe, he must deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, you have to die to yourself just as Christ died so that we can live this resurrected life. So suffering for righteousness sake, as Jesus did on the cross, demonstrates that Christ and his life, death, and resurrection is our new master and no longer are the passions of our former indulgence in the flesh our master. So Peter then continues in verse 3. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles, the unbelievers, those who are not in Christ, what they like to do. And then he lists some sins that obviously, if you're in Christ, those were sins that you used to indulge in, I used to indulge in. Again, two things I want to unpack here that Peter's talking about. Peter is saying, by saying this, Peter is saying this, listen, you've had your time to live this way. You've had your chance to live in sin, debauchery, and corruption. That time is over now. Uh, let me ask this question. It's a, it's a question a friend of mine loves to ask. Like me, how many of you came to know Jesus Christ after you were, say, 25 years old? Raise your hands up. Ra- ra- raise them up. Good. All right. Yeah, the rest of you look around the room. Those are the people in this room who really know how to sin, okay? <laughs> I want some instruction there? Those are the ones. Uh, okay. So, for better or worse, those are people who really understood this life of debauchery and, and corruption. Not that the, the rest of you don't, but man, we really, we really turned everything loose into it. We were out of the house, most of us, and we were able to just go right after it at that point. And the truth is, there was some fun in that. There was some fun. I'm not going to try to deny that. But it was also only fun for a season. Have you ever noticed how continuous Habitual sin eventually becomes a chore. You get involved in a sin, and there is a thrill at the beginning. But after a while, the thrill begins to wear off. And you need to either advance that sin to look for a new thrill with that sin, which will eventually wear off, or what most normally happens is that the sin actually becomes a chore, something like that you have to put on your to-do list. So it's true, sin is fun for a season, but it's a chore for life. That's the first thing he says, that time is over for you. And then secondly, he says this, uh, for this reason, in many respects, Peter says, you know what? That was also, in many respects, wasted time for you, that time away from Jesus. Have you you ever gone to a movie that you don't like, I mean, this Thanksgiving weekend is a big movie-going weekend. Many of you probably saw movies. You ever gone to a movie that wasn't very good, like, say, Titanic, and then you walked out of the, I know I'm going to get some emails on that. I'm ready for you. Anyway, you go to a movie you don't really like, and you walk out, and you say, well, that's two hours I'm never going to get back. Of course, in the case of Titanic, it was three hours that I never got back. Popcorn was good. You ever do, okay, well, I've had other experiences like that as well. You know, you get all ramped up and you get involved in something and you walk away and you go, that that wasn't as good as I thought. I could say that a lot about many of my sin experiences, which is actually quite sad. Why would that be sad? Well, here's why. Often, I would put a lot of time, energy, effort, and money into my sin. I would spend time planning it. I would think about it. I would pine for it. I would set aside time, I would set aside resources, and then I would get into the sin, and while I had some kicks, admittedly, very often on the other side of that sin, I would kind of look back and go, I don't know, it wasn't really worth the time, energy, effort, or money. It wasn't really worth it. But there's an aspect about it that it's not a waste of time in. It's not a waste of time in the aspect that the experience that that gave me has helped me to understand sin in a much better light today. It it, it has given me the experience in regard to knowing that I don't ever want to enter that life again. And it's also given me the experience to be able to help others who are also, as, as I was, and can be still, trapped in their hapless sin. I can speak into that. Again, that's that biblical sympathy, that interpathy that we've talked about before. Even again, Paul speaks to this concept in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. He says, And we know God causes all things to work together for good. For everyone? No. For those who love God and are called according to his glory. Even sin, he can use sin. He can work sin together for good? Yes, he can. Certainly the results of sin, I would go that far. If anybody could do it, it would certainly be God. It's not that he, doesn't, it's not that he wants us to sin. God doesn't want us to sin. But certainly he can use the results of that sin to be able to teach us something and, and, and demonstrate to others why it's bad. Here you go. You don't have to raise your hand on this. How many of you have ever been a negative example for somebody else not to follow? Very often, our sin can be that for other people. God can use that. God can kind of nudge you with the Holy Spirit and go, See that guy over there? Don't do that. Look at the trouble he's in. One of the best ways to learn is to let somebody else have misery and then you learn from it, okay? It's one of the reasons we have all these stories in the Bible. And then Peter names some of the sins that we formerly lived in. He says, So that time that is past suffices, but now. That time that you were living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts this together in his message. He says it this way. You've already put in your time in that God-ignorant way of life, partying night after night, a drunken and profligate life. Now it's time to be done with it for good. And Peter would say that in the gospel, with Christ in us, we can be done with it for good. Peter follows up this list of problematic behaviors with a couple of verses that I think we need to spend some time on. He says in verses 4 and 5, With respect to this, they, the Gentiles, those, those not in Christ, the people that you and I used to hang out with before we were in Christ, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." Now, that uh, Greek verb translated join them literally is running with them. And, and the idea in that Greek verb is, is that you're chasing. There's, there's this frenetic energy that, with which you're chasing this, this corrupt and, uh, way of life and all of this debauchery. The language here illustrates the frantic and feverish pace with which people pursue deliverance from the suffering of their life condition, often through sin and a poorly executed pursuit of truth and their displeasure with just how unfulfilling that kind of life is. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And we need to remember that just as the Old Testament is often in the background in this letter of Peter, so is the Sermon on the Mount, because He was, he was there. So think about this everyone is frenetically searching for truth. I found this. I've found that this is true. Everyone is frenetically searching for truth. Yet, I've also found that they are pretty sure that when they find truth, it's going to complement their cultural biases, confirm the way that they think, and bring comfort, ease, and peace to their life. In other words, if truth challenges them or causes them to rethink their worldview, well, then it must not be truth. I know this is true in my own life because I spent 27 years doing this if something caused discomfort for me I just assumed it wasn't true well that can't possibly be true for me I don't like it yet I cannot tell you how many times I've heard a person who is obviously engaged in either destructive and or offensive behavior say something like this well I'm at peace with this behavior so I know it's okay I'm a logical person, and the way I understand the world to work is that your truth works for you, but my truth is going to work for me. This is one of the reasons that biblical truth is a challenge to people, and that makes perfect sense to me, because like I said, I lived that way for 27 years. The Bible did not line up with all the worldly wisdom that I had acquired in my 27 years that that told me that life was supposed to be pleasurable and, and convenient, and that I was kind of really God. And when my friends would find Christ, I would be surprised that they no longer wanted to join me in my flood of debauchery and and my concept of truth and pleasure. And so what I would do, I would malign them. That's what Peter says. They malign you. Slander and gossip because you don't participate any longer. And silent non-participation in sin is often interpreted by those who are sinning as condemnation from you. That's why they malign you. Uh... Tim Mann, who's the teaching pastor at Gilbert, said it this way during the collective a couple weeks ago. He said, no one takes offense when you are the hands and feet of Jesus, when you're serving people, when you're sacrificing your money and time, and when you're rolling up your sleeves and getting dirty for the sake of others. But the minute you take a stand against a sinful way of life, often simply by not participating any longer, you will get attacked. And what we need to understand is that, is that it feels like they don't like us when they attack us. But that's not true. They they, they still like us. They still like you. What they don't like is they don't like Christ in you. That life of Christ that's been appropriated in your life. That's it. It it, it seems to be you, Frank, but I don't like what's happened to you. And what's happened is Christ in you. Now, I find it's interesting that this whole discussion comes in the wake, the immediate wake of what Peter says in chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, always be prepared. To present your case for why you have hope in Jesus, but with gentleness and respect. In other words, what Peter is implying here is that when they malign you, it is not a time for you to run away, but rather it is an opportunity for you to share with them the hope that you have in Christ. How are you going to deal with that? Have you thought about that? The holidays are upon us, and many times we're thrown into family situations with families who are antagonistic towards your faith. And they're going to malign you. Don't run. See it as an opportunity. So now we move into a discussion that I think has a lot of application. Not that those six verses don't, but, but these, these next five verses that Chad read for us have a tremendous amount of application. And the reason is because, once again, Peter circles back for the fourth time in this letter he circles back to how you and I are supposed to treat each other and behave towards each other in the church. And he starts in verse 7 by saying this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, Please, please, please understand that when Jesus says the end of all things is at hand, it does not mean that Jesus is coming tomorrow. Peter is not giving us a reason to become obsessed with end times so that we embrace all those prediction competitions that seem to go on every year ad nauseum. So then what does he mean by saying that the end of all things is at hand? It simply means that everything is ready. The conditions are right. The preparation is done. In other words, Jesus has come from heaven, he's lived on this earth, he's died on the cross, he's been raised to new life, he's been resurrected, he's sat down at the right hand of God, as Peter told us last week, he is in heaven, ruling with all the, the authorities and powers subject to him, therefore everything is ready, the conditions are right, the table has been set. It means it could happen today. Maybe it'll happen before the cardinals kick off because I've been told that in heaven the cardinals will never lose. But more than likely, it's going to happen not a few years from now, but probably hundreds or thousands or even more years from now. And one of the things I want you to remember that I keep telling myself is that every generation since the resurrection, every single generation since the resurrection has claimed We're the time. Jesus is coming back now. We know it. He hasn't come yet, but this is the time. The conditions are, this is when he's coming, and it hasn't happened yet. And I know some of you are sitting there going, yes, but I know this is the time. Hostess has gone out of business. Jesus is coming. I know he is. No more Twinkies. Here you go. The Bible says Jesus is going to come soon. But it's in God's timing. So here's the question I have. How many centuries in one God soon? I hope he does come tomorrow. That would be a great relief to many people. (laughs) I don't think he will. I think we've got a ways to go. And Peter's point is not necessarily to discuss end times, but rather his instruction in light of it. And his instruction in light of it is to be self-controlled and sober-minded. This imperative here directly relates to the sins listed in verse 3. Those who have minds that are controlled and sober are minds that have been renewed by the Holy Spirit and are not going to tend towards this kind of behavior. Tom has a great saying. My friend Tom Schrader has a great saying that applies here. What you know should trump what you feel. What you know should trump what you feel. We feel that we want to engage in these sins. But what we know, being uh, sober-minded, having a clear view and understanding of things, what we know should trump that feeling. Tim Keller talks about all the time, he talks about how, listen, in order to get this stuff into your heart and into your soul, into the very core of your being, it has to first come through your mind and transform your mind, as Paul says in Romans 12. You have to have a renewed mind. You have to have a clear mind. You have to be sober-minded. So we feel that we want to engage in those sins, but what we know, that Christ died and rose again and is coming again, that gives us the power to resist that temptation, that feeling that we have. That's the power of the gospel in us. And in this way, the sake of your prayers will be improved. Your prayers will be clearer and more focused. I will tell you, I prefer praying when I have a clear understanding of who God is and not when it's muddled by my passions for the flesh. It's much better to pray that way. Then he says in verse eight, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You got to know, I've been saying this for weeks, Peter has the Old Testament in the back of his mind as he's writing this letter, And, and this is probably his quotation of Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, which says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And that saying love covers a multitude of sins, has had a history of being poorly ap- applied. For example, this is not applied correctly as a way of avoiding a tough conversation. A lot of people will say, listen, we just have to love them. We never have to confront them in their sin. And they use this verse as a way to avoid a very difficult conversation. I will tell you that if I, am, if I have been falling into deep continuous, repetitious sin in my life and Jackie sees it and knows it, she is not doing me a favor by not confronting me with it. She is not doing me a favor by just saying, well, I just got to love him. She needs to talk to me about it. The elders are not going to do anybody any favors if there's a church member who is causing trouble and stirring up strife and and sinning in a way that is damaging themselves and many other people if if they don't say something to the church member about it. But love does cover things like our petty bickering and our preferences, all those goofy things that always seem to be at the core of church conflict. That when you strip away church conflict, what you find at the core of it is usually something very petty and something that has to do with somebody's preference. Love can cover something like that because it allows us to know when we should die on a hill and when we shouldn't. It also allows us to know when somebody is acting in character or out of character and we don't need to die on that hill. Here's another example. Uh, many of you maybe don't experience this, but many of you who are married, maybe you don't experience this, but in my marriage with Jackie, there are occasions when Jackie and I will offend each other. And what Jackie and I have been able to do over the course of the 25 years is that we know that when we've offended somebody, when we've offended each other, and it's really not in our character to do that, that it's the result of of maybe a bad day or some circumstances that are unique or whatever, we know that we don't need to die on that hill and we can just let it go. We don't need to put that in a sack sometime for later on and pull it out and, and use it against them. We know. But we also know when there's sin in our lives that desperately does need to be dealt with. So we, we have that ability to discern and that love helps us to, to be able to discern, dis- discern this. So loving biblically is a way for us to be willing to absorb certain offenses, but not use it as an excuse to never confront offenses that need to be confronted. Love also allows us to be gracious as we deal with the sin of others. It's not good to go after somebody belligerently uh, when they're in sin, but rather to do it in love but then also once we've confronted them in the wake of confronting the sin the love allows us to let it go when it's done you have the conversation you've won back your brother or sister as Jesus says in Matthew 18 and now you can let it go and you're able to choose to trust that person rather than to live in suspicion with them Paul says it this way in first Corinthians 13 love bears all things believes all things hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And now that love in verse 8 leads us into some very specific application in verses 9 through 11. Let me reread those for us so we know exactly what we're talking about. Peter writes, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one speak uh, uh, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever amen so paul says uh, peter says there right at the beginning of verse 9 that this level leadest specifically to hospitality. And you need to know that the word for hospitality there does not mean social gatherings or, or Christian fellowship. Not that those are bad things. We encourage social gatherings and Christian fellowship. We like parties. But rather, this is a word that actually talks about giving somebody a place to stay when they need it, a place to live when they need it. For a number of years, Jackie and I had college students living with us. We would become aware, because we were involved in a college ministry at North Phoenix Baptist Church, we would become aware of college students who didn't have a place to live or didn't have any money and desperately needed somebody to be able to take them in. And so on a number of occasions, we had college students live with us for more than a year at a, at a time. And I won't mention names for sake of privacy, but we have a number of families right here at Redemption Arcadia who are doing the exact same thing. They're opening up their homes and allowing people to live with them. We also have a number of families at Redemption Arcadia who have adopted children and who are foster parents as well. This is the kind of hospitality that Peter is talking about here. And we do it now for the very same reasons that they did it in Peter's time, for the sake of security and safety. You give somebody a place to live, it gives them a feeling of security and and a place and safety. It also helps them with economic sustainability, gives them a chance to get back on their feet economically, and it gives us an opportunity to shepherd and nurture and love these people. Very same reasons that Peter suggests that we do it. In fact, Peter then uses that as kind of a springboard to go into this idea of spiritual gifts and, and to say that whatever gift you've been given, if you're in Christ, you've been given a gift. And whatever gift you've been given, your call is to use that gift, to be a steward of God's grace in your life to others so that you can help build up the church and benefit others and glorify God in that. You were not given these gifts. We were not given these gifts to hoard to ourselves and for our benefit, but to use on God's behalf for the benefit of others. Are you using your gifts? And in verse 11, Peter talks specifically about two large categories of spiritual gifts. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. And of the speaking gifts, we need to remember that the speaking gifts uh, involve more than just preaching and teaching. Every time you and I speak into somebody else's life in the church... For instance, we are encouraging one another. That's a spiritual gift to be able to encourage somebody, to be able to correct each other, to comfort each other, to challenge each other, and to speak words of grace and kindness to each other. Those are spiritual gifts that we should be using. But we speak these words under and according to what Peter says, the oracles of God. Now, what's an oracle of God? Well, an oracle of God means truth and prophetic counsel of God truth and prophetic counsel of God in other words it's really helpful for us to know God's teaching and counsel in Scripture love is a terrific motivator for speaking into someone else's life yes but if it's not tempered by truth not only can those utterances have no effect on the person's life but sometimes they can be destructive we need to know what God is calling us to say And then of the serving gifts, Peter says, as the speaking gifts are are, are led by the oracles of God, the, the, the serving gifts are done under the strength of God, the gospel in us. Serving gifts include such tasks as administration and giving and hospitality and tending to the poor and to the sick. And the challenge, frankly, with the serving gifts is that they are usually accomplished in relative obscurity. Yet without these gifts, we don't have a church. You can't build a church just on the speaking gifts. You have to have the serving gifts as well. There isn't a week that goes by that that you aren't fully aware that I am up here teaching and preaching and yakking away. The challenge is, is that weeks do go by when you have no understanding. I have no understanding of the number of people in this community right here at Redemption Arcadia who are serving others every week in ways that are changing those people's lives. We need to be thankful for that and we need to pray for those people even if we don't know who they are because without them we don't have a church. Now in the midst of Peter talking again about how we in the church are supposed to treat each other, Peter is so overwhelmed by the gl- grace and the glory of God that he breaks into a little song prayer that is known as a doxology. You ever had, have you ever had in your life, ever, ever, you ever had that overwhelming feeling of joy in your life because of the grace and goodness in your life that you just want to break into song? Have you ever had that? Jackie has spent 25 years trying to redirect that energy that I have into something else because of my distinct singing inability. But I have that that feeling quite often just because of the grace and the goodness of God. And and Peter has it here. He's overwhelmed with the grace and the goodness of God and the work that God has done not only in his own life but also in the lives of the churches that he is writing. And the reason that he breaks into what's called a doxology is because he uses the word glory twice during that little lyric at the end of verse 11. And the Greek word for glory is doxa. That's why we call it a doxology. Whenever we do break out into uncontrollable praise for God and His goodness and His grace to us, it is because of the glory that He has in our lives. His glory has been poured into our lives. And so Peter, in the middle of this letter, during the part where he's talking about the church, where he's talking about you and I, he breaks into doxology. I aggravated Jackie this morning in the first service, and I'm going to do it again right now. Let's sing the doxology. Let's just break into it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. And the reason for the amen at the end of that, even in Peter's as well, is because the word amen means it is true. And because it's true, we can embrace it. And we know the power that it has in our lives. Now these 11 verses... These two paragraphs are actually about our identity in Christ because it is about the life, death, and resurrection that indwells us. We, who as a result of his saving work in our lives, now have the gospel power to live in this hope and to live these lives that Peter calls us to. And that leads to the big idea of this passage, and here it is. Because of who we are in Christ and the sufferings we share with him, we have the power to break from sin and live under his lordship as stewards of God's grace. I want to end with two exhortations in light of this passage. Here's the first. As Peter says in verse 7, we really need to have a clean and sober mind. And there's a lot of ideas, great ideas and suggestions on how to go about doing this. You know, we need to pray And we need to read God's word. We need to be in scripture. We need to go to Bible studies. And we need to be around uh, other Christians. We need to be in the community of Christ so that we can be around others who can sharpen us and help us. And those are all good things. And those are all things that we should be doing and that I advocate. But there are two other suggestions that I think are just as valuable that don't get as much press. Here's the first one. In his second letter to the church at Corinth, In the midst of defending his service to the church and at the same time talking about spiritual warfare, Paul writes that every thought he has, he takes it captive to Jesus Christ. Every thought. He holds up every thought he has to who Jesus is and what he teaches. He compares that thought to Jesus. Literally, he submits everything that's on his mind to the life, work, and teaching of Jesus. That's a pretty compelling way to have a clear mind and a sober mind, I think. And then second, and I think this goes right along with taking every thought captive to Jesus, in addition to that, we need to be willing to constantly and consistently do the challenging work in our life of self-examination. Because genuine, honest self-examination requires us to think and to pray, which will clear and sober up our mind very quickly. In this regard, think about what David writes in Psalm 139. He writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me away from it. Now this is really important to understand about what David is writing here. In this psalm, David is not giving God permission to search him and evaluate him and examine him. God doesn't need permission to search us and examine us. He's God. Rather, what what David is doing is he is willingly and enthusiastically submitting himself to that process. Literally, he is going to God and he's saying, I allow you to shred me from the inside out. I allow you to bring your truth to bear on my life. And it's not so that David ends up living a shredded life. That's not the point of being shredded by God's truth. Rather, it's so that then God, after he is broken you down, your inner life, my inner life, he can reconstitute us according to his grace, his love, his mercy, his oracles, his teaching and his truth. And that will clear and sober our minds in the process. So many of us need to embrace the idea that in order to be reconstructed well, first, sometimes we have to be deconstructed. And I know that can be painful, but David goes to him in Psalm 139 and says, do this to me, God, because I don't want any grievous way in me. I want to be led away from that, and I want to live according to your purposes and your truth. So take our thoughts to Jesus And willingly engage in self-examination, that will help to clear and sober our minds. And second, armed, as Peter says, with that clear and sober mind, now we can be stewards of the grace of God. We can live this life, life of grace and service, this life of humility and submission that God calls us to and equips us by the power of Christ in us. God has gifted us. We need to use these gifts for the building up of the church and for the benefit of others and, and, and for us to go into our community and, and let them to see who God really is, not what they think of the church or what their perception of God is, but who God really is. And if we're not going to do it, who is? If the church isn't going to be about doing this, who will? And I know some of you are thinking, well, there's this organization and then there's the government and there's all of this. I'm talking about not under compulsion, I'm talking about out of the love and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in us. That's why we do it. And remember, we're not called to do this for our glory, but we're called to do it for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. It is true. Let me pray and Sean will come up and lead us. God, thank you for shredding us again this morning. This, this letter of 1 Peter could be called the shredding letter because it just, it just deconstructs us but only to build us back up by your grace, your love, your mercy, all that you are in us because of Christ in us. God, we thank you for that. We ask that you would give us the courage to live this life that Peter calls us to, this life that is conducted with honor to those who are outside of the church and a life of love with those who are inside the church. God, we ask for that power in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are gonna-